Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me a voice to speak and this amazing opportunity to proclaim your word. Stand me up as you stood up your servant Daniel. Don't let me waste your precious time by being boring. Keep my brothers and sisters alert to your word and heed your warnings. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll find uh, our topic, our reading today on uh, Daniel 10 on page 748 of your Red Pew Bibles. This is a brief narrative interlude in a series of incredible prophecies that fill up the back half of uh, the book of Daniel. But what an amazingly unusual interlude it is. Daniel's experience in this chapter gives us a glimpse into another world, the best glimpse we have, and it's a world of spiritual warfare. Operating under constraints that we're not in a position to fully understand, God's servants, the holy angels, wage war against Satan's servants, the unholy angels, demons. And somehow, the results of this war bleed over to influence the fate of nations. War we understand better than we would like to. The stakes of our wars here on earth couldn't be higher. They're a matter of life and death for entire ethnic groups and nations. But what are life and death to immortal, intangible spirits? What do they fight over? And with what armaments? Our reading from Ephesians 6 hints at the kinds of weapons that would prove useful. By reading the, but reading this chapter is something like trying to watch a Quidditch match without knowing a blodger from a quaffle or the snitch. And you don't know the chasers from the beaters or the keeper from the seeker. And for those of you who don't catch the Harry Potter reference, that's my point exactly. Without understanding the rules, the players, the equipment, we don't understand the game. We can't figure out what's going on. This is a difficult passage. Like Jacob before us, let's wrestle with God's word to attain Daniel's understanding. He starts with the background situation at the time of the vision in Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacy, no meat or wine entered my mouth nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the banks of the great river, that is, 
the Tigris. We'll pause there. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That would be 536 BC. Daniel is no longer in Babylon, which sits on the banks of another great river, the Euphrates. Zerubbabel, David's heir, has led his people back to the banks of another river, the Jordan. But Daniel isn't with them either. He's on the banks of the Tigris, maybe near Susa, former capital of Lydia, or Ecbatana, former capital of the kingdom of Media, both of which served along with Pasargade, former capital of Persia, as the chief cities of the empire. And it's now the 24th day of the first month. That would be three days after the week-long feast of the unleavened bread, which follows Passover. In this feast, Israel was to remember that they were no longer to be puffed up with the leaven of Egypt's pride. They would celebrate the events of their deliverance by the hand of God and their subsequent return to the land of their fathers. This feast had obvious significance to the returning Babylonian exiles. Fallen, fallen was Babylon the Great. As the prophet Jeremiah had foretold 70 years earlier, but the future that looked so bright two years before had faded by 536 BC. At that point, due to agitation on the part of the neighboring Samaritans, reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem had been halted. Reconstruction that had been authorized by King Cyrus himself, the Lord's anointed one, as we read in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. True, Israel's 70 years of exile were at an end. But her 70 weeks of years that she must wait for the arrival of her own anointed one was just beginning. So that brings us to our first celestial combatant, the man clothed in linen. Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ephaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell on them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. 
my radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. First, take note of Daniel's response when he encounters this being who faints. Now, admittedly, Daniel's stamina is not what it once was at this time. He's about 85 years old. And he's fallen on his face before when he was confronted by the angel Gabriel in Daniel chapter 8 and lost control of his senses briefly after the angel spoke. But on that occasion... He recovered his composure after the angel touches him once. In chapter 10, the angel must strengthen him three times to stand him back up on his feet. Now back in chapter 8, Daniel was physically in Babylon. But the vision takes place in Susa, the capital of the enemy. In this chapter, Daniel is actually standing on the banks of the Tigris. So perhaps the physical encounter was more intense than the dream encounter. On the other hand, in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel encounters Gabriel for the second time, apparently in person, no remarkable reaction is recorded. Likewise, though Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is disturbed by Gabriel's appearance in Luke chapter 12 verse chapter 1 verse 12 as is the virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 29 neither loses consciousness possibly this unnamed spirit is of higher rank than Gabriel whose importance is never specified in the bible but he is presumed to be of high rank Gabriel stands in the presence of the Father, in, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 19, while the seraphim, observed in the divine throne room in Isaiah 6, must cover their face with two wings, their feet with two wings, and remain off the ground, flying with another two wings to remain in the divine presence. I conclude that Gabriel was an angel of high rank. I believe that by the time of this vision, the appearance of angels to Daniel was old hat. Next, notice the response of the men who are with Daniel. They're unable to see the vision. Maybe they can hear the sound of the words, but at any rate, they don't stick around. They run to hide themselves. This is reminiscent of the response of Adam and Eve to the voice of God walking in the garden. It also reminds me of the reaction of Saul's companions during his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. Now let's talk about his clothing. He wears white linen, which signifies priestly office. And he wears a gold belt, which signifies high rank. 
This is the uniform of the seven angels who will pour out the bowl plagues on the earth in chapter 16 of Revelation. But more provocatively, a gold belt is mentioned at one other place in the Bible. That would be Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. I'd like to read those to you. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs in his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys to death and Hades. I trust that you can recognize the similarity of this man with the man in Daniel's vision. The one like a son of man in John's vision has the same fiery eyes, though his arms and legs are now covered by his long high priestly robes, his feet remain visible and are of the same burnished bronze. In John's day, he stands among the seven lampstands of the heavenly temple and wears his golden belt no longer around his waist, but as a sash over his shoulder in the fashion of the Aaronic high priest, wearing his breastplate and ephod. And of course, there's no difficulty in identifying this son of man. He is the first and the last, the living one who died and is alive forevermore, holding the keys to death in Hades, none other than the crucified and risen Christ. And John, who knew the Lord well enough to have rested his head on his lap, still, upon beholding him in his glory, falls at his face like Daniel before him. The identification of the Lord in Revelation 1 as one like a son of man calls to mind the fact that Jesus was condemned to death for the crime of assuming that title for himself in Matthew 26, verse 64, after being asked by the high priest, are you the Christ? the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. At that moment, the Lord himself was quoting Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. The man clothed in linen in Daniel 10 is a theophany the pre-incarnate Christ. Let's continue to learn about some of the other 
combatants. Verses 10 to 14. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he spoke the word to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is of days yet to come. Now, if you, like me, have been convinced that the man dressed in linen represents the pre-incarnate Christ, you might find this passage a little strange. The person talking to Daniel has been sent, which implies subordination. Now, of course, Jesus is sent. The Son is sent by the Father. But how is it possible that the efforts of Jesus to reach Daniel could be hindered by this Prince of Persia, whoever he was, for three weeks? And that Christ could need the assistance of Michael, archangel though he is, to extract him from the struggle. True, the earthly Christ needed the help of angels to minister to him after his temptation in the wilderness and in the garden of Gethsemane. But the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, before he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, he in whom the fullness of deity dwells, I can see. That just doesn't make any sense. Okay, it seems safe for me to say that the individual speaking to Daniel at this point is the owner of the hand which touches him. Now, since only one man has been mentioned, I assumed that the individual was the man in linen, but that is not clear from the text. And in fact, that is not the case. Much later, we learn in Daniel chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, the man clothed in linen is accompanied by at least two other angels. Let me read that to you. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? In fact, the man in linen hovers over the waters of the Tigris, just like the voice which commanded Gabriel in Daniel chapter 8. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. If the voice 
in Daniel 8. And the man in linen in Daniel chapter 10 and 12 represent the Lord hovering over the water of the Tigris. It follows that the speaker, presumably the angel standing on Daniel's side of the river, was the one involved in the contest, while the prince of Persia, with whom he contended, is a demonic prince. The man in linen, the pre-incarnate Christ, is neither personally involved nor hindered by the angel's struggle with the prince of Persia. I think of him more like a coach. Now, we know the combatants and their equipment. We even have a hint that the fate of kings of Persia are at stake in their struggle. Now let's read from verse 15 through the end of the chapter and actually first verse into the first verse of chapter 11 to see if we can understand how this works. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood beside me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these, except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. The key, I think, to our understanding is the identity of this man, Darius the Mede. I know what you're thinking. Who cares about an old, dead, forgotten guy. Ancient history is boring and irrelevant. You are listening, my friends, to the voice of the enemy. The struggle of angels is the struggle over whose historical cliff notes will be heard and remembered. This is spiritual warfare. Resist the devil and he will flee from you because he cannot stand the truth. What does it mean that the angel stood up Darius the Mede? Probably something like he just stood up Daniel himself. Or Nebuchadnezzar, according to the dream in Daniel. Remember from chapter 4 how that looked to Nebuchadnezzar. My reason returned. The name of Darius the Mede has been stricken from the annals of history and that is important. This gets to the heart 
of what's at stake in spiritual warfare. Here's my take-home message. Spiritual warfare is a war of truth opposed by lies. People with power twist the truth. They put a spin on it to justify their actions. Now, if you could believe what I say, we'd be all done here. Okay? But you can't relinquish your thinking to somebody else, even if that somebody else is me. You have to see it for yourself. Otherwise, you're in danger of falling for the next lie. Have you ever heard the expression written in stone? That is supposed to mean that the thing is fixed, true, and unchangeable. No mention of Darius the Mede has been found in any archaeological record. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the images of Isis destroying antiquities in Palmyra? Can I suggest to you that the first thing a victor does when he wants to rewrite history is smash anything contrary to his reconstruction? Particularly anything written in stone. You know what the second thing he does? He builds new monuments, retelling history his way. We have three main literary sources of information about the history of this period. First, of course, we have the Bible, God's Word, written at the time the events occurred. We also have two written accounts from the Greeks, one by Herodotus, a contemporary of Socrates writing about 400 BC, or roughly 125 years after these events. And one by Xenophon, a contemporary of Plato and fellow student of Socrates, writing about 375 BC, or roughly 150 years after the events. But there's a problem. History, as recorded by Herodotus, cannot be reconciled with history as recorded by Xenophon. If that surprises you, think today about the debate going on about whether there was or was not a Holocaust 70 years ago. An event that to some people today was a myth. How can we determine which of these two sources are accurate? The history of Herodotus acquired a reputation among the ancients as being unreliable, biased, and dishonest. It fell under heavy criticism from such writers as Aristotle, Cicero, Josephus, Plutarch, and the early Christian Lucian of Samosata. But here's the problem. The history that Herodotus gives us agrees very well with our archaeological record, particularly inscriptions from the reign of Darius the Great, who ruled from about 550 to 486 BC, or about 20 years after the events in this chapter. But the account of Herodotus also cannot be reconciled 
with the account in the Bible. No problem, right? In modern times, it's become fashionable to discredit the Bible as a source of historical information. According to this viewpoint, the Bible is a theological work written long after the fact, in other words, mythological fiction. Daniel's prophecies in particular are suspect because of the incredible degree of accuracy in the next two chapters of their prediction of the career of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian tyrant who tormented Israel in the middle of the second century BC. If, as it claims for itself, the book of Daniel had been written in 536 BC, it would be miraculous for Daniel to so accurately predict events that would occur 400 years later. And scientific men, of course, do not believe in miracles. Now let's talk about the history of Xenophon. He was a Greek mercenary general in the army of Cyrus II in his unsuccessful uprising against his brother, Artaxerxes II. As a retired officer, I tend to give more credit to the accounts of soldiers as opposed to the accounts of news reporting and politicians who are more interested in a good story than in the truth. Generals are more interested in the truth than a good story because a good story isn't going to save their army when they engage in battle. The truth will. More to the point, Xenophon's account agrees in every detail with the account in the biblical narrative. I've given you a handout. I'd like you to look at that. Um, outlining my best attempt to reconstruct the dynastic succession in this time period. Yes, it's confusing. But warfare is all about confusion, particularly spiritual warfare. My wife Brenda has a saying, when a story doesn't make sense, it's because somebody is lying. And Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Many of these kings died prematurely. Ask yourself, why? We're going to go back to the reign of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal installed his brother as king in Babylon because he had a war to fight in Egypt. And it was inconvenient for the king to go back and forth from the battlefield in Egypt to Babylon for the customary annual feast, which was required. After defeating Egypt and installing the puppet king Necho, Ashurbanipal turned his attention to the rebellious Medes. As a result, their king was, was killed, Media was overrun, and the Median prince, Sayazaris, vowed revenge. After a Babylonian rebellion, Ashurbanipal's brother was replaced by one of his generals, who was installed as governor, not king, in Babylon. And that man's name was Nabopolassar. Nabal-Pelesar 
Actually, after uh, Ashurbanipal died, his two sons started a civil war between the two of them, and the kingdom of Assyria was in some turmoil, and Ashurbanipal got together with Sayazaris of Media. They formed an alliance, and they sealed the alliance by the marriage of their two children, Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar, to Sayazari's son, uh, daughter, <laughs> Sayazari's daughter, wasn't quite this uh, uh, modern, uh, Amethyst, okay. Uh, this alliance was able to defeat the Assyrian army and destroy their so- strongholds at Nineveh. The victors split the territory of the Assyrian army between, uh, empire between them and then buried its history in rubble for well over 2,000 years. From Daniel 1, you're well aware that Nebuchadnezzar succeeded his father, Nabopolassar, to the throne of Babylon. Meanwhile, Astyages, the brother of Queen Amethyst, succeeded to the throne of Media. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son sat on the throne of Babylon for two years before he was assassinated by Neraglisser, one of Nebuchadnezzar's generals. He's mentioned in Jeremiah 38. Neraglisser then married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Nitocris, cementing his own claim to the throne of Babylon. Unfortunately for his son, Neraglisser's reign only lasted three years, insufficient time to secure his succession, and his own son, while still a child, was also assassinated after a few months. His killer, Nabonidus, another of Nebuchadnezzar's generals, established his claim to the throne by marrying Nitocris, widow of Neraglisser, and of course, still daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Their son, Belshazzar, you are familiar with from Daniel 5. Astyages, The king of Media had two children, a daughter, Mandane of Media, who married his ally, Cambyses of Persia, and a son, Sayazaris, who would later be known as Darius the Mede. According to Xenophon, the son of Cambyses and Mandane of Media, later known as Cyrus the Great, would spend a sizable portion of his youth in the company of his maternal grandfather, Astyages, and uncle, Sayazaris, Darius the Mede, becoming skilled in the art of diplomacy. Threatened by allies of the Babylonian king, Belshazzar, the Medes called for assistance from their own Persian allies, and Prince Cyrus arrived with a small force, 30,000 infantry. Trusting his vanquished, or at, by treating his vanquished enemies better than Belshazzar treated his allies, Cyrus won them over to his side of the conflict and amassed a huge army. After the conquest of Babylon, Cyrus installed his uncle as king of Babylon, and as Darius had no sons and his daughter married Cyrus, It was evident that Cyrus would inherit both the kingdom of Persia upon the death of his own father and the kingdom of the Medes upon the death of Darius 
as well as, of course, the fruits of their conquests. Now here comes the tricky part with the, with the uh, princes of Persia. After the death of Cyrus, his eldest son, Cambyses, died under mysterious circumstances while on campaign in Egypt. His lance bearer, a man in his company at the time of his death, then hurried back to Persia where he orchestrated the assassination of Cyrus's second son, Smyrdas, whom he claimed was actually pseudo-Smyrdas, a Zoroastrian magician named Gaumata. The younger brother, it was claimed, had already been secretly assassinated by his older brother, the late king. This lance-bearer was the son of Histaspes, one of the generals of Cyrus, and the grandson of Gobirus, another of Cyrus's generals. By taking the throne name Darius, he conflated the identity of his maternal grandfather, Gobirus, with Darius the Mede. In order to further legitimize his reign, Darius married the daughter of Cyrus, Atossa. Did I mention that Darius is the one who erected the monuments in which modern historians place such great stock? So what are the implications for us today? Spiritual warfare, it seems, is a spiritual struggle using spiritual weapons as described in our reading in Ephesians 6. The combatants are associated with nations as their leaders try to put a spin on history in order to cover up their own wrongdoing as they vie for power. This has been going on since the beginning, and it is going on today. Jesus is the light. The stakes in our earthly struggle couldn't be higher. They are a matter of life and death. That war was won for us on the cross at Calvary. But its effect still hurts. As you well know, if you've lost loved ones. Jesus is the truth. The stakes in the heavenly conflict couldn't be higher. It's a war of truth versus deception. That war is yet to be won on the fields of Armageddon. Jesus is the way, the only nexus point between our world and the heavenly realm. The only point between the truth and our experience and memory. We must wrestle with and come to know his word as the foundation of our lives on the rock of his truth. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through you. Lead us in your way. Do not let us be led astray by the lies of our enemies. In your name.